everybody and welcome to this Facebook live session. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I hope you've had a good day at work or indeed you may still be working, but we're grateful that you've joined us. I know a lot of you have been very involved with us while we were responding to the consultation on the post-registration standards. So we want to take this opportunity to update you on, on where we are and I'll introduce our guests in a moment but also introduce a new topic to you, which is about regulatory reform. So for those who don't know me, I'm Jane Beach. I'm the lead professional officer for Unite on Regulation. Um, and I'll introduce my colleague who's here with me, Obi. Hi, everybody. I'm Obi Amadi. I'm the professional officer for policy, strategy and equalities. And we're very grateful to our two colleagues from the NMC who have agreed to join us tonight. So I'll just go in order on the screen. So Anne, do you want to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, good evening, everyone. Delighted to be here. Hello, I'm Anne Trotter and I'm the Assistant Director for Education and Standards and led on the Post-Registration Standards Review. And Natasha, please. Hi, uh, I'm Natasha Dare. Um, I'm the Head of Regulatory Policy at the NMC um, and I am leading our work, well, one of our work streams as part of the regulatory reform programme that we are working on with government and other regulators. Brilliant, thank you. So without further ado, because we've got quite a packed programme, a lot to get through, I'll hand over to OB, um, who's going to, with Anne, go through the post-registration standards. All right, thanks, Jane. Um, before we start our kind of conversation, Anne, if I just say to people to remember to engage via the Facebook comments or to tweet questions, because we have had some questions sent to us ahead of the event, but obviously live in real time is, you know, will be brilliant too. Okay, so Anne, thank you again for agreeing to have, the, have our uh, chat. Um, in terms of the post-registration standards and the review, um, the approval has signaled the end of the education review programme. Um, it's been quite a journey, three years or so. How do you feel? <laughs> uh, relieved, I suppose, is the first thing. Um, we actually kicked off, uh, I'm going to really show my age now, we actually did the independent evaluation of pre-reg and published that in 2014, would you believe? And obviously we started with pre-reg, but then we published the independent evaluation of the post-registration standards in 2019. So that started me on my journey for specialist community public health nursing and community nursing SPQs. So yeah, it's been quite a journey, Ovi, but to be honest, it's also been brilliant because all the learning from each and every project has taken us to the best one by far, which are the post-reg standards and the amount of willingness and co-production and I was just commenting to a new member of staff at the NMC today that the community of practice so this this was not the people that were in all these groups that we put together but the community of interest for uh, post-reg was over 700 people uh, who wanted either to get involved or to stay in touch so it, it's been it's been a, a journey for everybody and I'm just grateful to collaboration and cooperation of everyone, including Unite and CPHVA. It's been brilliant. Right, thank you for that, Anne. I mean, just um, thinking about the whole kind of like process and the, you know, the more recent um, consultation and that, in terms of the consultation and the responses, were there any surprises? And what do you think were the challenges? Yeah, there was one, there was one or two surprises. Um, I mean, you're always optimistic that because we were co-producing the draft standards that we kind of captured the essence of what everyone felt was important. But by putting it out to public consultation, you're, you're just kind of testing that with a wider uh, group of people. And the biggest surprise for me was actually in the programme standards. Uh, I thought there would be a lot more challenge around supervision and assessment than there was. And interestingly, you know, the levels of agreement were over 80% for that aspect of the consultation. Um, for, for Skiffin, actually high levels of agreement with what was coming forward. So what, what I was pleased about is 
we definitely hadn't got it wrong, but there were areas where the consultation findings helped us to make these standards even better. So that's what post-consultation assimilation was all about. So they're, they're probably the, the standout moments for me, but the fact that people, it was a complicated consultation. So the N number, you know, the people that answered questions about health visiting different to the number of people that answered questions about occupational health nursing, for example. Uh, and so we, the independent analysis that we had through the engagement themes and then through the consultation were absolutely invaluable. Um, so yeah, it, no, no shockers, interestingly. And I suppose I've got to mention the prescribing thing uh, because we went into the consultation with no consensus and we came out of the consultation with no consensus. <laughs> so we then had to build consensus in the final phase of the project. And, and we did it for Skiffin, we did it and it was, it was actually, wow, we, we succeeded. Everyone agreed with the, the level that we'd reached. And then we tested that out further. So yeah, that, that was a high moment too. Great. And so it, and in terms of the standards, how would you say they've been received? I think it, the, the challenge with standards, and I, I always say this, um, you know, there's no point in doing a lovely shiny document that either sits on a, NMC website shell for people download and print. They have to mean something. And you know, when we're all away doing other things, we're not there to explain, oh, what I meant on page seven was this. You know, they have to be able to lift them down off the shelf, interpret them, and, and know the ambition that sits within them. So I think the next phase is probably even more important as people move forward to get together their groups to develop their own curriculum. So that's the universities and their partners um, and say, okay, now we've got these new standards. What, what does that look like when we're turning this in and translating this into a curriculum and program outcomes? And what will the assessment look like to measure this? And I guess my biggest fear is that people will think, well, the program I have now is wonderful. And, and it might be wonderful, but it's not based on these standards. So we're not looking for more of the same. So we want to support the implementation journey. It's not just about job done. Thank you very much. I'm off. It's more about how can we support and clarify. And if someone in Aberdeen's got an idea, how we connect them with someone in Cornwall that's got the same idea <laughs> so that you get that kind of consensus building within those program developers and, and practice partners as well. Great, I mean, that's, it sounds exciting. And it also sounds like quite a lot of work. So, I mean, in terms of the standards being approved now, um, in terms of the NMC and the rest of practice, what happens now? So, um, we, we wanted to publish the standards last Thursday and, and people will know we haven't done that. And, and there's a very uh, good explanation for why we're running a week late. So we want we will be publishing these standards on the 7th of July. So that's in two days time. Um, we were a bit delayed by Welsh translation because obviously when we publish these standards, we publish them in English and we also publish them in Welsh. So what we've all been dealing with so far is a kind of word copy paper document. Now there'll be a, a web-based document on the NMC website that actually you can link through to things uh, in a coherent and cohesive way. And so for example, if you were a university with your partners that was only going to develop a health visiting program, you can click through to those pages um, and not look at occupational health nursing, uh, let's say. So that, that's step one. One of the other exciting things we're going to do in uh, late October into November is we're going to hold four launch events, uh, one in each of the countries, where it's a bit of a celebration to say thank you to everyone who's participated in getting these standards to the right place, and also to celebrate the, the end of this change programme, so how these post-registration standards link with other standards such as um, the education framework and the standards for student supervision and assessment. So there'll be four events that will get into everyone's diaries very soon. Um, but 
Another really exciting thing, and I'm delighted to tell you about this, is that we're going to be recruiting two new members of staff. So we have some nurse advisors at the moment, and we have two senior nurse advisors. We're going to go out to advert for two new posts for um, nursing advisors for post-registration standards. So they will be there to work every day on supporting implementation locally. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic that these uh, adverts will go out in the next couple of weeks. And then what we want to do is get uh, people recruited as soon as possible. It, they can come to the NMC and be a fully uh, fledged member of staff. They can have a secondment, they can be job shares. We're very flexible in that regard. Uh, so they will work very closely with me and the team to support the implementation. At the same time, we're also gearing up for quality assurance. So uh, as you know, we outsource our QA to uh, an organization called Mott McDonald and Mott McDonald will be recruiting visitors. So they're recruiting two types of visitors. One is um, registrant visitors. So people with these qualifications and then lay visitors. And our definition of lay is someone who is not and never have been on the NMC register. So we're going out to, they're going out to advertise for the visitors and I will be involved in the training of those visitors for their role uh, for quality assurance purposes. And Mott McDonald have already been asking universities what their plans are. And we've had some response to that. So I know, for example, that there are 12 universities who've already said, uh, I'm seeking approval of whatever it is and when, they'd like that approval to happen. Um, so there's no one rushing to do this for September 2022, Obi. Uh, they, you, they could be an early adopter, it'd be quite a rush, but no one's uh, opting to do that. What they're actually doing, it, the earliest one seems to be spring next year. So if any educators are listening and they haven't put their approval requests in, please, uh, can you do so? And we'll get everything organized with you. So they're, they're the main headlines. We're also going to be doing uh, some supporting information and hopefully when the new staff come in, they can be part and parcel of that as well. And that supporting information, uh, a lot of it is going to be in the supervision and assessment space, but not exclusively that. So they, they're just some headlines for now, will be. Mm -hmm. All right, that's lovely, Anne. Thank you for that. Um, just um, thinking about some of the questions that we've had in. If if I just start, you know, let's let's just go through them um, and see where we, you know, where we get to. Um, we had a question in from uh, one of our members who'd said, "I've read the new standards and note that health visiting and school nursing have separate standards." Certain NHS trusts are combining the role of health visitor and school nurse as one with regards to a 0-19 service, which means that health visitors are also seeing school-aged children. It may mean that a short course with an educational institute can be undertaken within the NHS trust, but that the qualification and registration does not change within the NMC register. Is it acceptable with regards to duty of care? It is an absolutely brilliant question. And when, as you know, the current standards, there is one set of standards that apply to the different fields of SCIFM practice. And, and what these new standards have are core standards that apply to all the fields. Yeah. And, and the decisions made on those was that we would, if, if it applied to health visiting, school nursing and occupational health nursing, it was a core standard. And if it only applied to health visiting, it was a health visitor field specific standard and so on. So that's the, that's the shape of these standards at the moment. And if someone wants to become a health visitor, they have to do core standards as it relates to their health visiting practice. So the evidence base behind that and the field specific standards as it relates to health visiting practice. And similarly for school nursing. Uh, because everyone said that they were not the same. Now, if someone is a health visitor, for example, and now wants to uh, be a school nurse, at the moment on our register, you, you're a Skiffin health visitor, but you cannot be a Skiffin health, 
visitor and a Skiffin school nurse. What the new standards do from the programme standards point of view is offer opportunities for recognition of prior learning. So if someone is a health visitor, for example, and wants to do school nursing, then obviously there are different standards to be achieved to demonstrate that proficiency as a school nurse. So these are some of the practicalities we're going to illustrate through some of the supporting information. In terms of the duty of care, Obi, it is a really interesting one because one of the things we, probably more so than any of the other standards we've developed is the variation between countries is quite dramatic. Not just on how these standards are used, but how the services um, are commissioned and applied. So although one part of the United Kingdom might have, see this as a not to 19 service, other parts of the country very clearly differentiate the service for health visiting and the service for school nursing. And what our standards needed to do is not get in the way of what each country does, but be capable of being applied. So we're going to create some case scenarios to illustrate these points to make it very, very clear. Um, so they're just some, and, and if anyone wants to support us with that development of supporting information, we will take all help uh, to do that, to make sure that if something's happening in a particular part of the country, we're illustrating that properly, and then we'll show how that differs with another part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, no, that, that, that answers that question really, really well. Um, thank you, Anne. Another thing, going back to something that you touched on um, before when you were talking about the standards, um, we had a question that asked, do you think the addition made to the preparation of assessors and supervisors will be sufficient to improve what is currently happening in practice? Um, and part of that comes from, I think, the concern about not everybody feels they're able to do that well. Yeah, yeah, it is such an important role. And we know, you, having lived through the pandemic, that inevitably things were maybe not applied in the same way because of the restrictions on the workforce, the fact that many uh, members of staff were deployed. But what this is not put in place as a barrier, it's put, it's put in place as an enabler that people have the confidence to be a practice supervisor. Now the code says that everyone on point of registration as a nurse or a midwife has the capability and the capacity to be a practice supervisor. But what we're asking for here are practice supervisors for these post-registration students who have that higher level of knowledge and skill. So even though um, some of these professionals may be very capable practice supervisors for pre-registration, we're not saying that that's a like-for-like -like situation. So the standards for student supervision and assessment apply to all parts of the register and all qualifications we set standards for. But what the programme standards are trying to do is reiterate some of that emphasis on these are post-registration students with post-registration learning needs. So through the quality assurance, we will be scrutinizing, it's a gateway approach. So gateway two is all about the standards for student supervision assessment. And if that's not satisfied, the university and their partners cannot proceed to gateway three when you start looking at the curriculum and the program standards and how those program meet the proficiency standards. So let's assume everyone gets through gateway two and they're saying, this is what we're doing in the post-registration space with the agreement of our partners, how they'll be prepared, how they'll be continue to be supported in supporting these post-registration students and how they will evaluate and audit what's working and what needs to be different. Then in gateway three, we'll look at that through the lens of the programme standards and the actual proficiencies themselves. And if at any point in the, the situation we're not assured, then these programmes will not be approved. Now, it's been a little time since a lot of the Skiffin programmes have been scrutinised because everyone's been waiting for the new standards. So this gives us that golden opportunity to do that. Now, will it Will it be better? I'm an optimist. I hope so, and I think so. 
if everyone applies the standards um, in the way that everyone wants to, because this is about preparing those future professionals for these specialist roles. And, and they have a big accountability and responsibility to do that. So working with you regionally, locally and nationally, knowing what, say, for example, the devolved nations are doing through their whole country approach, knowing what the regions are doing in England in relation to that. And we will be putting people in touch with one another if they want to, for example, get a, a common practice assessment document developed so that everyone knows what good looks like through the assessment process while letting the universities to have their own unique selling point for their own curricula. So these are all, this is why implementation is so important, Obey, and you, yeah, we've, we've, you, I've never said tick, job done. It's, it's the end of the beginning. Let, let's put it that way. There's a lot more to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of what you said, that absolutely, you know, it's a it's a great answer. It's very clear. It's thought out. The 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 difficulty is when people then start to implement it in practice. So you know, I'm sure that there are going to be lots of um, conversations that we're going to have in the meantime around this and and tweaking it to get it right in terms of giving advice. I'm not sure if I can, we've had a question on that, Anne, which, which seems appropriate to add it in now. So post-registration student assessment and assessment, sorry, are a struggle in practice. Why was the practice teacher role stopped? Won't be the first time you've been asked that. <laughs> no, absolutely. I've asked it as well. <laughs> um, well, as you know, we, um, we did a review. You, the, the independent evaluation that I mentioned way back in 2014 also looked at those uh, older standards, the standards of sport learning assessment and practice, commonly known as SLAP. Um, and that's where practice teachers sat. And, and even though those standards were hugely prescriptive, very process driven, the amount of variation continued across the country. And, and there was a, a real sense, I don't know how many of you remember Cathy Duffy's work from her PhD about failing to fail. Mm. And, and that was still happening in, you know, when we were doing that evidence review in the 2014 period and beyond. So even with that very prescriptive standards, we were not seeing good practice across the board as one might so, you know, as people might suggest when they say, oh, practice teacher was great. And, and nowadays what we hear about is that, you know, some practice teachers, if that role's continuing to be maintained at the moment, have got in excess of six, eight, ten post-registration students. So merely by having those post-registration uh, practice teacher qualification wasn't a recipe that everything would work and everything would be uh, done properly. So when we consulted in 2017, we consulted across all parts of our register and these standards. And the, the, although there was a lot of mixed views at the time, overall the consensus was change needed to happen. There are different ways for assessment to be set up and supervision. So we know the coaching model is very popular in some areas rather than the one way that the NMC used to set. So that, that, was, that was the rationale for the change at the time. And we know also that a lot of SCIFID and SPQ programmes during the pandemic, because the emergency standards permitted a move into the SSSA, many of them took that opportunity to do that, to build in more flexibility. So now we're going to really just test it out through the QA process. And like I say, you know, there's been a lot of tension with supervision and assessment because of the workforce pressures and the recovery plans and challenges that we have had over the last few years. So it's something that we, we know we're not going to let go of. We're going to keep looking at and keep scrutinising. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks, Anne. Um, I think um, we've got quite a few questions come in, but just so that we don't fall behind, I'm just going to ask one more question before we, we move on and change over to Natasha, if that's okay. Um, so Anne, one of the other questions that we had was about revalidation. When revalidation was introduced, we were told that we didn't use the proficiency standards to revalidate. We used the code within our scope of practice. 
Now it seems to be suggested that we use new proficiency standards. Why this change and how will this work for those who may not meet the new standards or have gaps um, or for those in non-clinical roles? Have you worked with employers to ensure they will provide and pay for any CPD required to <laughs> Yeah. Oh, these are fantastic questions, I have to say, Obi and Jane. Um, what's really interesting, um, you know, having me on this journey myself for the last six years or so, this is not about whether people likes a standard, doesn't like a standard. This is about managing change and managing change uh, in action. Out, in clinical practice or other settings. So revalidation has not changed. People revalidate in line with the code and in relation to their scope of practice, that has not changed. But what we're also saying is that for those of you that are practice supervisors and practice assessors, you should look at these new standards as well. And looking at these new standards, you may identify things that you don't know or have not had the opportunity to know or learn and be able to do. And so you can flag those as CPD opportunities with your own line manager. Because you, you need to know these things in order to supervise, support and assess effectively. But what we're also saying when you are thinking about revalidation, if you have that ambition, to increase your knowledge and skill in line with these standards, why would you not take that opportunity? And when you're looking at your reflective uh, practice and thinking about those things you want to write about, and now whether that's, whether that's you're a practicing health visitor or a school nurse, or whether that's in your capacity as a practice assessor, um, reflecting on those roles in line with the new standards um, is, is a, a good step forward as well. But what I will say is that we're going to be um, doing a refresh of revalidation guidance. It's penciled in at the moment. Uh, we published our revised uh, corporate plan for our strategy uh, earlier this year. And so that review will take place in 2024. And, and that's where we'll do uh, you making it very clear in terms of money and CPD, um, sadly, uh, we cannot influence how much money an employer donates or gives or supports in relation to an individual uh, registrant CPD. What we will say is that CPD is part and parcel of being that professional and developing your professional practice. So we use our support and influence in those space to influence those employers that actually investing in their staff means you invest in their future, but you also invest in your service and the retention of your staff. So we, we try and build those key messages in as well. Um, but when we're publishing the standards, we're reminding people of the opportunity to go look at these new standards, see how they've changed, see what's different. And then as Obi, your, your person who asked the question has mentioned, identify something well, I didn't get that opportunity and I think I should now have that opportunity. So that lets them start that conversation with their employer as well. All right, thank you, Anne. I mean, that's really great. Um, we'll have to pause our questions with Anne for now. We, we do know that you have sent other questions in. If we've got time at the end, we'll go back and try and address them. So now let me hand you over Absolutely, thank you very much. So. That was really interesting, some good opportunities there for members as well, and it's not the end of the story, so um, obviously, you know, we'll keep you informed and involved. So now we're moving on to a new topic that I don't think many of you may know much about. So I'm going to hand over to Natasha, who's going to talk you through um, regulatory reform and how this may potentially impact um, on Skiffins. So over to you, Natasha. Thank you very much, Jane, um, and I can only hope that my presentation is half as engaging as, as Anne, um, who is just so incredibly knowledgeable, um, so it's always a pleasure to listen to you. Um, okay, uh, next slide, please. Okay, so some of you might or might not be aware that our legislation is going to be changing. 
And the NMC, um, as a statutory regulator, um, all the work that we do is underpinned by the quite complicated legislation that we have in place. Um, and the nature of that legislation, which is complicated and increasingly out of date, means that we can't always make the changes that we would like to, to be able to help uh, registrants um, and to uh, protect the public in the way that we would like. So we are uh, delighted that the Department for Health and Social Care, who is our parent uh, in the government, as it were, parent department, um, is working with us and with the other health and care regulators as part of a big program to review all of our legislation to make sure that it's fit for the future. Um, and we are expecting the changes to start to happen in 2024 at the earliest. I know this sounds like it's a long time away, but um, given the nature of legislation change, that it really isn't too far. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm pleased to be here talking to you today to see uh, your views on the proposals so far. Next slide, please. So we've always had a very clear vision in our heads for what we hope that changing our legislation will actually mean for people. What we want is a simple register, which means it's easier for everyone to use. At the moment, the public register is, is uh, not as widely or as well used as it might be. Um, and we want to have legislation that means that it's as clear and straightforward as possible. Um, part of this is going to be through consistency with other regulators um, and the way that they regulate. Uh, multidisciplinary working means that it's ever imp increasingly important that we um, look for opportunities for consistency with our fellow regulators. Um, and of course, the benefit of having a, a really clear, simple register is that it gives everyone confidence that the people who are on the register are the right people, that they have the right skills, knowledge and behaviour to practice safely as a nurse, midwife or nursing associate. So absolutely fundamental to what we do. But we also want to take the opportunity to look at the way that we regulate additional qualifications. Um, and those are qualifications over and above someone's uh, initial registration. And they can show what um, a professional is able to do on top of their pre-registration training. And the third area that we are looking to make changes in is protecting the title of nurse. Um, and at the moment, the, uh, the title that's actually protected is registered nurse. So this is something that we're working with government on. Um, and we also want to have clearer powers to stop people from using job titles that imply that they have one of the qualifications that we regulate. So the example that we've given there of a nurse, but also health visitor. We only want people who have one of the qualifications that we regulate as a health visitor to be able to use job titles that imply that they have that qualification. And I'll come on to this in a bit more detail later on. Next slide, please. So, bear in mind, I have to caveat everything I'm saying here with that these are proposals that come from the Department of Health. Um, and so I'm, I'm uh, kind of passing on uh, their proposals, but um, please be assured that we are working very closely with them to make sure that those proposals line up with what we think we need our register to look like. But what DH are proposing is that our register will have three parts, each for one of the professions that we regulate. So that's nurses, midwives, and nursing associates. Um, and also uh, we'll have mechanisms to meaningfully regulate additional qualifications to help protect the public. And our proposal is that initially the, these additional qualifications will reflect our current post-registration qualifications that Anne's already been talking to you about for Skiffins, SPQs, and prescribing. Next slide. So, to set out more clearly what I mean by meaningful regulation, what we do at the moment is that there are two ways that we can indicate whether someone has a post-registration qualification on our register. So we have the Skiffin part of the register. So at the moment, that's a separate part. And that's for people with these additional Skiffin qualifications on top of their initial registration. So the current register structure is a little bit confusing because three of the parts of the register are direct entry for professions. And one, which is Skiffin, um, is for people who have gained additional qualifications on top of their initial registration. 
We also indicate um, specialist practice qualifications, SPQs and prescribing against individual register entries. Those aren't parts, unlike SCIFM, they are what are called recordable qualifications, so we can note them on people's register entries. But of course, it's worth bearing in mind that we don't actually regulate most post-registration specialisms. So, for example, if you want to get a master's in palliative care, and that's relevant for your um, everyday practice, we don't have any say in that, and we don't note it on our register. Um, in terms of revalidation, people validate against their current practice, um, and explicitly they have to keep their nurse or midwife or nursing associate registration up to date. Um, and of course, for most people, their current practice reflects their, the post-registration qualifications that they have, but not necessarily. Um, but at the minute, uh, we don't have any way of separating out, um, um, you know, uh, indicating to people whether they need to revalidate against their post-registration qualification or not. All we can do is say against your current scope of practice. And this is because we can't actually change the register if someone's no longer using their qualification. So, for example, if someone is no longer um, using a specialist qualification, we can't remove that information from our register. So you can see how quite quickly our register becomes out of date because we can't change it uh, to reflect what you're currently doing. Next slide, please. So what we are intending uh, to happen after regulatory reform is that um, uh, our regulation of additional qualifications will be more meaningful in several ways. Um, people will need to keep up to date um, with their post-registration qualifications through revalidation. So we're thinking about how we can ask people to explicitly include their post-registration uh, qualifications when they're meeting the revalidation requirements. And we'll be able to remove people's qualifications from the register if their skills and knowledge aren't up to date. Um, so revalidation is one point at which we can do this, but we also anticipate that people will be able to contact us to ask us to remove details of qualifications um, at their request if they're no longer using them, so they're no longer meaningful for their practice. And also, as I mentioned earlier, people won't be able to use job titles that imply that they have one of our qualifications. So, for example, people won't be able to call themselves a school nurse if they don't have a school nurse qualification for which we set standards. So that's one of the ways that in the longer term, we want to make sure that the information that we put on our register is really meaningful and relevant to people's actual everyday practice. Next slide, please. So um, just to expand a little bit more on um, protecting the title of nurse, um, so we're working with the Department of Health to review the protected titles and qualifications that are set out in our legislation. And also uh, related to that, we're looking at the abilities that we have to enforce against those protected titles. So we want to have clearer powers than we currently have to be able to stop individuals and also employers to use these confusing job titles. And this is really going to involve us working very closely with people to make sure that they understand the reasons behind this, um, this approach um, and making sure that employers understand that the job titles that they give to people have to align with the qualifications for which we set standards. So we're not proposing taking a draconian approach to this. We want to work with people. But as I say, in the long term, it's a way of ensuring that what we regulate is actually meaningful for practice. Next slide, please. And so thinking ahead to beyond kind of day one of regulatory reform, we'll have the opportunity to consider what our new um, uh, structure means for advanced practice. And what regulatory reform is going to give us is the ability to be able to regulate advanced practice meaningfully if our council decides that's needed for public protection purposes, because of course that's always what we have to base our decisions on. And ways that we might do this uh, mean we could set standards for qualifications that are about advanced practice. Um, we could require people to keep their skills up to date. And we could stop people from using titles such as an advanced nurse practitioner if they don't have um, a, a qualification for which we set standards. So with this in mind, we're going to start looking at regulating um, advanced practice this year, building on the post-registration standards work. Um, I don't think this is going to be um, a swift piece of work. We're going to, to need to talk to an awful lot of people and consider this very carefully. 
um, but I'm sure it's something that Anne is looking forward to um, uh, now that, of course, the, the post-registration standards are completely done and dusted. Um, next slide, please. I'm glad that Anne is on mute, by the way. I can imagine her cursing me. <laughs> um, so, in terms of what this actually means for, for, um, for you on the ground, um, we're still working with the Department for Health to understand what's going to change and when. Um, this is an ongoing process. They're actually starting with the General Medical Council's legislation, um, and then they're going to be using that as a blueprint for us as the next regulator along in, in the chain. Um, so that just adds an extra layer of complexity that we are trying to understand what this means for the NMC through the lens of the GMC's legislation. So please wish us well. Um, but because of the long time frame, there's going to be lots of opportunities for you to have your say. Um, we will be consulting on um, uh, what some of our legislation looks like uh, next year. Um, and there are particular areas that we are really interested in focusing on at the moment. So uh, one, as I've mentioned already, is um, uh, how we might incorporate post-registration qualifications into a validation um, more, more effectively than we do at the moment. Um, another one that I'm really keen on is how we can uh, overhaul our public register. At the moment, if any of you've looked at our public register, all the information that you need is there, but it's, um, um, you know, the, some of the information that we're currently required to display, I don't think is the most helpful. And I want to take the opportunity of regulatory reform to have a look at the way that we display the information. So not just what we display, but how we display it to make it easier to use, to use clearer language, to use a different layout to guide people towards what's really important. Um, and running through all of our regulatory reform work is the equality, diversity and inclusion strand. Um, and so we're very interested to hear from people, um, their views on the impact on different groups with different protected characteristics. Um, you know, we're keen to make sure that um, you know, the register is, is simple and accessible and easy to use. And um, you know, we want to, to hear your views on that, but also more widely on some of the other proposals, for example, about protecting different titles um, or post-registration regulation. Next slide, please. Oh, I think we may have come to the end of the, the presentation. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Natasha. Now, Obviously, there's a, a lot of information there, and, and some of our members may, may know about it and some may not. But um, just for clarity, really, so when you talk about the register regulating nurses, midwives and nursing associates, what you're effectively saying is the skiffin or the third part of the register, as, as it's widely known, will no longer be there. That's correct isn't it we know we don't know that's definitely going to happen but that's the proposal is is that well right? we can't even necessarily actually be that clear we think okay. that's the way the wind is blowing um from what the department of health has said about what will happen to the gmc's register essentially what they're looking for is for registers to be as clear as possible and that really means that they only have the, um, the, the professions indicated as separate parts. Um, so they're looking for post-registration information to be, it, it can be on the register, but it won't be through a separate part in the way that it is at the moment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously there may be, because I think obviously for a lot of our members that will be alarming, particularly those who remember what happened to health visiting when it stopped being in statute, you know, um, stopped being a separate entity. So, and I think also those that remember when, because it, it is quite complicated, I know, but you're talking about health visiting going back to being an SPQ in the same way as district nursing is. And, and I think a lot of us remember you know, years ago, Health Institute was an SPQ and then it was decided that wasn't enough to protect the public. So I think that's, you know, I think probably we need those conversations. But from what you're saying, nothing's set in stone so we can have those conversations. So and and maybe come up with a good idea of, of how, you know, it would be meaningful and and be better on the register. I'm not sure if there was a question in there, Natasha or just me kind of 
putting my thoughts in, but, you know, it is a lot, I think, you know, a lot of people will be concerned, but I think it's reassuring to hear you say that, you know, nothing is set in stone yet. So, so you know, we hopefully can have those conversations and because what we all want is that, you know, public protection and, uh, and, and that is met. So um, we have got a question here. Um, that's asking about where you're talking about protecting the nurse title. Does that mean community nursery nurses will have to remove the nurse from their title? I'm yeah, not sure. it's, a, it's a really good question. Um, so we've identified um, several groups of nurses. So there's nursery nurses and veterinary nurses and dental nurses who we've particularly identified. Um, who we would need to, or who the government would need to exempt um, from legislation to protect the title nurse. Um, they're not, this is not about uh, penalising people who are legitimately, you know, using a, a well-recognised, well-used uh, job title. Um, this is about making sure that, that core nursing skills are being carried out by people who are trained and competent to do so. So um, the way that the uh, government has proposed addressing this is, is by naming specific groups in the legislation who could continue to use the title of nurse in conjunction with um, uh, another word. So something like, as I say, dental nurse would be um, that would that would still be allowed. So um, we're keen to hear if there are other groups who are legitimately using the title of nurse in conjunction with another word. Um, who think they need some kind of carve-out, we'd be very interested to talk to them. Yeah, so obviously community nursery nurse would definitely be one of those, so, so we can put you in touch with our community nursery nurses, that's no problem. Um, and another kind of point here that you keep referring to the Department of Health, but it's a question about... Um, you know the devolved nations so who you know are you in discussions with Scotland I know it's because the Department of Health in England kind of leads on regulation but um it's just a question about you know who you're in discussion with with in the other countries yes it's, again it's a really good question um so we have stakeholders across the UK um but uh because the regulation of existing groups of professionals is reserved, it would be the Department of Health that would be carrying this through. They obviously also have their own responsibility to be talking to um, uh, their counterparts um, in the devolved administrations. Um, but it's something that we're very interested in. So for example, you know, we're aware that uh, job titles are used differently in the four nations. And so we are aware that there is a devolved um, element to this that we need to understand. And that's through our ongoing engagement. We have um, uh, working groups um, within the NMC for each of the four devolved nations, and we have ongoing conversations um, with the um, devolved administrations as well. So, for example, we just had a council meeting in um, Northern Ireland. Um, and, um, yeah, so we'll be picking up those conversations on an ongoing basis. And I think an another point or question that was asked again was in relation to where you said about you wouldn't be able to use those titles unless you've done an NMC approved um, qualification. Does that mean in areas where they, you know, perhaps move across roles that they wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be able to work across roles, so you wouldn't be able to work in the community as a district nurse if you hadn't got the district nursing qualification because obviously at the moment there are some people who call themselves a district nurse who are not a district nurse so what will happen to those people again it's a really good question um, and it's something that we need to be very alive to um, we are at a bit of a tussle because on the one hand we don't want to devalue the um, uh, skills and knowledge and experience of people who are doing a very good job without an NMC qualification um, in, in a particular role. But at the same time, um, if we want to push ahead with making NMC regulation more meaningful on the ground, at some point, we will have to start considering that people who 
the only people who can use a job title that implies they have one of our uh, uh, the only person with a job title that implies they have one of our qualifications are people who have those qualifications. So we're envisaging a kind of transition period. Um, we are definitely going to have to work with employers to explain the rationale behind this and to um, to not end up um, as I say devaluing um, professionals. Um, but um, I think ultimately. What is going to have to happen um, after a, a suitable period of time and engagement is that people will have, will need to have a qualification that we regulate if they want to use one of those job titles. Um, I know that's a, that's a shift, um, um, and I'm you know more than happy to engage with people on their concerns or if they've got ways that they think that we could you know uh, make this happen in a kind of smooth and seamless fashion. But um, we, we are keen that we don't perpetuate the situation that we have at the moment um, where um, NMC qualifications are conversely um, maybe not as valued as they might be because they aren't so strongly associated with a particular title. Um, I think what will help support this is that if we can remove qualifications from the register when they're no longer in use, We'll have a register that's more dynamic and more reflective of practice. So the two things go hand in hand. We'll have a register that more clearly shows what people are currently able to do, um, and we'll also have more meaningful regulation. You know, the, 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 the way we regulate post-registration qualifications will be more meaningful on the ground. And so, while I know this is going to take time, I do think that's the best position than we're in at the moment. Thank you. And and one more related to. The register so having the third part of the register um, means that the NMC have to set standards for that part so do you know what will be in the legislation to compel the NMC to continue to set standards for health visiting? Um, I don't believe that they, the, um, the order which is our main piece of legislation will contain um, anything requiring us to continue to set standards for health visiting. But what I do anticipate is, well, there's two things. One is that um, we've just completed um, our post-registration review and we are absolutely committed to the standards um, that we have just set out and updated in that review. We have no intention of not setting standards for health visiting in the short to medium term. Um, and also what we can do is um, put things into um, kind of lower level legislation over which we have control to set out what we will set standards for. And I think that's probably the vehicle that we'll use to give people some certainty um, in the longer term over this. I mean, in the, in the very long term, the whole purpose of regulatory reform is that we have um, more opportunity to keep um, what we set standards for under review. Um, so, for example, at the moment, um, we still have um, fever nurses specified in our legislation. I'm not suggesting that health visiting is anything like fever nursing, but um, it, it's um, having things named in legislation um, in some ways is the wrong place to have it because it is so um, it's so slow. It, you really can't be fleet of foot. Um, when you have things um, named in very high level legislation. So by moving it to lower level legislation, which we'll have control over, we'll be able to give people kind of, you know, medium to longer term assurances that we'll continue to set standards for health visiting, but at the same time, freeing us and other people up to consider, um, you know, to kind of keep under review what we really need to be setting standards for. It, it was any suggestion that we won't be setting standards for health visiting. In fact, if anything, I think it would be more likely that we'll expand what we set standards for. So, for example, into fields like um, into areas like advanced practice that we can't set standards for at the moment because they're not named in legislation. So I know that ultimately it feels like something is being taken away by not having health visiting named in the, the main legislation in the way that it is at the moment, but we are committed to the post-registration standards and we have to publicly consult before we change anything. That's not going anywhere. Um, and in the longer term, I think it's got to be a better situation that we can review what we set standards for as practice changes on the ground. 
while there's a need for us to set health visiting standards, we're absolutely going to. It'd be a complete dereliction of duty if we suddenly rubbed our hands in glee and said, great, we don't have to set standards for anything. Of course, that's not going to be our approach. You know, we have to keep public protection. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sounding glib and I really don't mean it. Um, we have to keep public protection absolutely front and centre of our minds. This is simply moving the locus of control from government and from things being very slow to us and things being a little faster, um, but still being subject to us gathering evidence, talking to people, consulting publicly and absolutely taking public protection into account first and foremost. Thank you. Thank you, Natasha. There was something else that came into my mind then and it's completely um, gone, but I think we are... Have we got any more questions, Dave? I've been looking at my phone. They've been coming through on my phone. But um, so, oh, I know what, what it was, Natasha. Any kind of time scale? You know, obviously, we, we and our members don't want to miss the opportunity to influence this really important work. So do we have any idea of time scale and key kind of points along the way that we need to be involved in? Yes, um, to an extent. Um, we are completely subject to government's timetable on this, and it does keep flipping. Um, our best knowledge is that the government will be consulting on what the GMC's order looks like in the autumn, and it's absolutely worth having a look at that because that will then be the blueprint for what all the other regulators, sorry, the order being the the kind of highest level of legislation that we have um, and so it's worth keeping an eye open for that because then you'll be able to kind of read across from what the government says about the GMC's order to what it's thinking about the NMC but then next year we will be going out to consult ourselves on what our rules will mm. look like and that's a lower level of legislation and that's something that the NMC will have control over um, going forward. So there's kind of two bites of the cherry at this. There's at the high level, um, which is, you know, as I say, looking at the GMC, but hopefully you can see what's happening um, to the NMC. And then we'll be consulting next year on the more detailed piece of legislation called the rules. Um, um, so you will have plenty of opportunities to, to talk to us. And the door is always open. We really, really are keen to hear from people about this. When you're talking about legislation, it can be quite, um, it's quite an ivory tower exercise. Um, and I actually really like the opportunity to hear from people about how this is going to work on the ground, because we're only going to get better legislation if we talk to you. Absolutely. So thank you very much. Um, that hour has gone past really quickly. Um, I know we did have a lot to cover, but even so, it's flown by. So I'm going to go hand over to OUB, who I think is going to um wrap it up for us but i do thank you both for your time and it, it won't be the end of the conversation so thank you all right yeah so i'd just like to say thank you to everybody for joining us um we know that your time is precious and you know thank you for you know interacting with us and posing some of the the that unfortunately we ran out of time for now in terms of those questions um could i ask and um that we, if we send those questions and comments on to you, if you would be able to respond to them for us to repost? Yeah, absolutely. And we will be developing FAQs, but uh, in terms of tonight, absolutely. Okay, that would be lovely. Okay, so because I mean, one of the things is that we know that you know our members have been great at supporting us in terms of how we move through and respond to changes and consultations. And you know, we still want you to engage um, in terms of what we do, join us in our focus groups and our discussions as we you know, move along and continue with the new standards and with whatever happens with regulatory reform. So you know, please continue to engage with us, keep an eye out for information about what's happening, consultations, focus groups. Um, I'm sure we will be having Anne and her colleagues you know, with us again for another Facebook Live session like this. Um, and you know, we'll we'll let you know when that happens. So thank you very much, everybody, for your you know your concentrated hour this evening. I think it's been really valuable. I hope that you all find it so. You know, let us know, um, and yeah, we'll get answers and comments to you. Have a good evening. Thank you.